Today on Inside Politics, Nikki Haley's turn in the barrel. She was the target of attacks from the men around her on the debate stage last night. She says they're just jealous as she wins new endorsements and climbs in early state polls. But it's, of course, all relative. Haley may now be in second place in states like New Hampshire and South Carolina, but she is still 20 or 30 points behind Donald Trump. Trump, of course, was once again not on the debate stage. He was where you see him now in New York City, particularly uh, in a uh, courtroom in Manhattan. That is where he is as we speak. Listen to what he said just before going into the courtroom. It's for a civil fraud trial threatening his business. This is a witch hunt the likes of which probably nobody has ever seen. We've put on a case that is Absolutely 100 percent. There's not a judge in the country that wouldn't have given us a total victory, but there's not a judge in the country that would have even taken this case. This is a witch hunt, and it's a very corrupt trial. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is still in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where I left you last night, Jeff. Uh, good to see you. Uh, as we mentioned, Trump, of course, once again was not at the debate. Uh, what do you make of how he uh, made out? at that debate, given the fact that he certainly was the target of at least one of his opponents. Well, Dana, things are a lot more uh, calm than they were last night than when you were here at the debate. But look, I think you have to say that former President Donald Trump uh, was a center point of the discussion, but really there were no new attacks on him. Uh, but we are seeing again today Another example of this split-screen moment where he'll be spending time in the courtroom as his rivals are on the campaign trail. Uh, but Chris Christie clearly trying to make the case, trying to shake Republican voters to think about the possibility of him next year as a convicted felon. Let's watch. These three acting as if the race is between the four of us. The fifth guy, who doesn't have the guts to show up and stand here, He's the one who, as you just put it, is way ahead in the polls. And yet, I've got these three guys who are all seemingly to compete um, with, you know, Voldemort. He or shall not be named. They don't want to talk about it. Let me make it clear. His conduct is unacceptable. He's unfit. So Chris Christie really the only one bluntly making that argument that he's unfit for office, he being the former president, of course, in his view, he tried to sort of bring the Florida governor Ron DeSantis into that conversation as well. But at the end of this series of debates, there is no doubt that Donald Trump's decision to skip them has not hurt him at all. In fact, it may have even helped him some, Dana. Jeff, thank you. I uh, want to ask also about Nikki Haley. She is responding this morning to the fact that right. she had all that incoming on the stage last night. I mean, we watched her together, Dana, and she, of course, was uh, biting her tongue at some points, perhaps unsure how to answer at other points, but clearly not wanting to get in the fray. But this morning in an interview, she pushed back and defended her conservative credentials. They know I'm tough on China. They saw the work that I did as governor. They know what I did at the U.N. Last night, it was it was very clear. We're surging in the polls. Every one of those guys sees it and they showed it. But we're picking and choosing our battles. Picking and choosing our battles. So that shows that it was a bit of strategy. 
Now it is in the hands of the voters. All the candidates making a beeline back to the campaign trail, particularly Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, flying to Iowa. He'll have two events today. You can see the rest of the schedule there. Vivek Ramaswamy also going to Iowa. He's had more campaign events than any of his rivals. Nikki Haley arrives there tomorrow. Chris Christie, of course, going to New Hampshire. And Donald Trump, of course, in that courtroom in New York. But I think one big takeaway from all of this, talking to uh, some Republican operatives, and Iowa, Dana. Strong night for Ron DeSantis, no doubt about it. It wasn't perhaps as uh, slick as some other uh, candidates we've seen over the years, but he really got a lot of his conservative record out there. And that, of course, is music to the ears of Iowa social conservatives. So now, again, not a single vote has been cast. Voters have uh, a few weeks to ruminate over this, mm -hmm. the holidays as well. 39 days until the first votes of this campaign. Yeah. But who's counting? Oh, wait, we are. <laughs> uh, it was. I agree with who's you counting? about uh, Ron, Ron DeSantis, and we both heard uh, from his team that they were quite happy. Obviously, it was the spin room, but it was right. uh, a little bit more than spin last night. Thank you so much, Jeff. See you soon. And we're talking about Ron DeSantis. He is continuing today to attack Nikki Haley. Here's what he said on Fox. <clears throat> She's, they're spending millions of dollars trying to attack me, so of course we're going to fight back. Uh, the surge is more of a media uh, uh, thing. You're not seeing it on the ground with conservative voters. In fact, conservative voters don't support her. I mean, that's just the reality. But notice, she was really uh, bragging about these liberal Wall Street donors who are now supporters. These are people that supported Hillary Clinton. These are people that have opposed Donald Trump in the past. Let's talk more about this with our great panel, CNN's David Chalian, CNN's Eva McKend, and Jonah Goldberg of The Dispatch. Hi, everybody. Hey. Uh, had a little nap last night. Nice to, <laughs> nice to be back. Um, David Chalian, what was your overall takeaway of the debate? Well, just picking up on what you just played there from DeSantis, one of the things when I watched the debate stage last night that I kept asking myself was, DeSantis was unloading the opposition research book onto Nikki Haley, and he was trying to get out every single piece totally. of, of research they had on her, which A, shows they see her as a real threat in this moment of the campaign. And B, my question to myself was, I wonder if he's going to continue to press that on the campaign trail in a way that we really haven't seen as much, or is he just going to leave that to this high-profile moment in the debate stage? We'll see in Iowa. He obviously continued it in the Fox News interview. Notice he said uh, he loves to tie the donor thing, the fact that she has the, uh, some Wall Street donors and the Cope Network, uh, to some people who previously had supported Hillary Clinton. This is also while one of the super PACs supporting him is up with an ad tying Nikki Haley to Hillary Clinton. And as he did last night, he is trying to make her not one of us, meaning conservative and, and tried and true uh, conservative the way that the base is in Iowa that's going to show up to the caucuses. And that, I think, is going to be his mission for these next several weeks to sort of other her as something that is establishment, more democratic leaning, and not really one of us. And I thought that was just an interesting approach last night as he put it all together. And he had some uh, help last night from Vivek Ramaswamy. Let's listen to a bit more of the dynamic that you're talking about. The only person more fascist than the Biden regime now is Nikki Haley. She should come nowhere near the levers of power, let alone the White House. I, Nikki, I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. It's not worth my time to respond to him. Nikki Haley, she caves anytime the left comes after and she will cave to the donor. She will not stand up for you. And I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. Jonah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with David on almost all of that. I think you can make a case that with the except of Vivek Ramaswamy, unless he was like going into it to be even more reviled, um, all could be, make a claim to having won last night. Nikki had her worst performance of any of these debates, but that's from a high bar, and it's also, she also last night was clearly the front runner, which is a good place to be on any debate stage. Uh, Chris Christie dominated the stage, which is always a good place to be. And Ron DeSantis had his best performance so far. So, you know, how that all matters, I don't know how many persuadable voters were watching last night. Um, and so, even though I think Vivek Ramaswamy's attacks were risible and grotesque and deranged, um, I don't think they matter that much because no one's going to be replaying them a lot except in the context of look at what a jerk this guy was and look how well Nikki handled it. So I th the only other takeaway I would have, and this is true of all of these debates if you take Ramaswamy out, when you don't have Trump on the stage, this is still pretty a Reaganite party. Mm. The arguments, I mean, Nikki and DeSantis don't actually disagree on very much. They just say the other one is lying about what they say their positions are, and here's <laughs> some oppa research to prove it. But on the actual things they're campaigning on, there's not a lot of daylight between them. Oh, that's such an interesting point. So. <clears throat> We did see Chris Christie, you said he dominated the stage. Uh, I said to him afterwards, it was like you were a fourth moderator uh, in that debate. Let's listen to what he did to defend Nikki Haley. He has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence. If you want to disagree on issues, that's fine. And while we disagree about some issues and we disagree about who should be president of the United States, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting so her. Eva? I mean, it seemed like he was on the verge of an endorsement right then and there. <laughs> but listen, uh, Governor Christie, he knows his audience. He is really competing for the New Hampshire voters. And he knows that though that's a more moderate electorate, that they like them both. And so I think that there was some political strategy there as well. I was texting uh, with a pastor earlier this morning, and he shared with me that he was really disappointed in how personal the attacks were on that stage last night. So uh, Chris Christie is speaking directly to that and uh, trying to uh, hone in on that. I do think that as we get closer to New Hampshire, if he's still in this game, he's going to be more aggressive with her. I actually asked the former New Jersey governor about whether or not he was, um, I, I didn't use the word endorsement, but pretty close. Let's listen to our conversation. It seemed as though you were forming a bit of an alliance with her. No, it's not me, you know, forming an alliance with Nikki Haley. Wait till you see what's going to happen over the next seven weeks. What's going to happen? We're going to be competing against each other hard to try to win New Hampshire, I suspect. David Talion, you speak New Jersey. Can you translate? <laughs> I do. <laughs> proudly, proudly so. Um, you can expect that there's going to be an aggressive campaign from Chris Christie against Nikki Haley. Uh, first of all, uh, to Eva's point, He's put all his eggs in that New Hampshire basket. That's his launch pad if he's actually going to have any kind of staying power in this race. You know, the initial question that Christie got in this debate from Megyn Kelly last night was like, why are you still here if Republicans don't like you, right? And uh, Which is the, a good question. No, no, totally fair <laughs> question about his political standing in the race. It's, but, but the answer is, 
I'm trying to carve out a possibility here in New Hampshire where independents can vote in the race. What is he doing today? He's launching a college tour in New Hampshire to try to get to some young voters. He's trying to piece together a potential coalition in, in the New Hampshire Republican primary electorate where he can overtake Nikki Haley's stance there and perhaps stand one-on-one uh, -on -one with Trump, not for the, I don't mean the duration, but on that night uh, as the results come in. And that will change the calculus for people of their understanding of him in this race. Obviously, he is a long shot for the nomination, but he's not somebody who's just it, apparently gonna like yeah. go and acknowledge the reality of the polls. Right. He's gonna fight this yeah. out for what he's committed to doing. And that means taking Nikki Haley down a peg in New Hampshire. You agree? No, I agree with that. And, and just more broadly about his debate performance last night. I am pretty passionate that what our politics doesn't need is more lawyers. But um, one of the things that Christie does better than anybody else in politics is in what he did to Marco Rubio is he kind of breaks the fourth wall with mm -hmm. the audience. And he said, because he actually does this thing that only trial lawyers who have to listen to hostile witnesses can do. He listens to what the other people says and says to the audience, see what he did there? He was reading from a script. Mm -hmm. He wasn't actually being honest with you. And he could repeat back what the question was. And I think that's very effective and kind of meta in a way that you don't see on presidential debates. That's such a good way to put it. I, I, you, you definitely can feel it, but I couldn't sort of articulate it until you just did so well. I have to ask before we take a quick break. I've been thinking about this since last night. The way that Nikki Haley's, Haley uses her femininity, the fact that she is the only woman up there, uh, it's very intentional and it's very... Um, it's, it's subtle, but it's not so subtle. It isn't. And, you know, she uses it to her uh, benefit. She, I think, says that she's not interested in engaging in identity politics, but she definitely plays up the fact that she's the only woman on that stage. Calling everybody fellas. Yes. I mean, it's and what we saw from her really, I think, you know, some people say, well, this wasn't her strongest, but I think that we saw from her a quiet, a quiet confidence that really illustrated that she yeah. knows she's winning. She didn't have to engage in mm -hmm. some of these tit-for-tat fights because she's doing well. So why even get in the gutter? Yeah, that's kind of a mom, <laughs> a mom move, I think. And yes, I do speak. Winning from amongst the four on the stage. Right. Yes, that's yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Very, very good point. Uh, everybody's. We have some breaking news on Capitol Hill. The House just voted to censure. Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman for triggering the fire alarm in a congressional office building when there was not an emergency. Adoption of House Resolution 914, the House has resolved that the House of Representatives censures Jamal Bowman, representative from the 16th Congressional District of New York, that Representative Jamal Bowman forthwith present himself in the well of the House of Representatives for the pronouncement of censure, and that Representative Jamal Bowman be censured with the public reading of this resolution by the speaker. The GOP-led censure resolution passed by a vote of 214 to 191. Up next, Vivek Ramaswamy unleashes conspiracy theories on the stage. Hear how he responded when I talked to him about it after the debate. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Vivek Ramaswamy was spewing some dangerous conspiracy theories on the debate stage last night. He claimed the horrifying January 6th insurrection was an inside job and pushed the white nationalist great replacement theory. I spoke to him about it after the debate. But when you use the term great replacement theory, that is... That is is exactly what that refers to. But but you understand that 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 term is something that... Evokes anti-Semitism coming, it, and it has, evokes piece of this. I'm against anti-Semitism, okay, and I've spoken but, accordingly. But people who have, but I think have we also have to admit the that, truth of what's happening, Dana. But and it's this is not, coming through Biden's but own this words. This is being this is being used ten years ago for killings in Buffalo, Look, for a killing Biden, in Poway, if California. A if it was a Republican saying the same things that Biden but said ten years ago, do you ago, understand how dangerous you call it, it is? Conspiracy theory. It's not even just a conspiracy theory. It's dangerous. I, I, because I disagree. I think what's dangerous is the suppression of open dialogue. Well, look, I think that we need to have more open dialogue in this country. Our great reporters are back with us. Uh, Jonah Goldberg, I'm going to start with you on this. Yeah. So, uh, look, I really it's very difficult for me to exaggerate the low esteem I have for, for Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Your question is absolutely appropriate. Great replacement theory as a phrase references in large part the sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that says Jews want to replace uh, white Christians with uh, you know, third worlders and whatnot. It has its roots in France, it came to the United States, it's incredibly dumb, it's incredibly stupid, it's incredibly paranoid. He knows that's how it rings and when he's, it, so it's sort of like you know, the, sort of the Hamas militant type who speaks about peace in English to the West yeah. and then at home talks about murder and stuff. He knows his audience that he's trying to get support from understand that term for what it is and then they love to hear him sort of play this oh you're crazy for even thinking it's anti-semitic game everyone knows what it is he does the same thing with the january 6th stuff whether he knows better or not what he is doing is he's trying to essentially monetize it's sort of a roger stone strategy the sort of the dregs of the sort of you know very online um, uh, Alex Jones crowd, that's a constituency now for parts of the right. Mm-hmm. And he wants to be their standard bearer. Well, that, it is uh, a constituency for parts of the right. And I think that's why it's, it's important to call it out, because it has for a long time lived on the fringe, online in particular in recent years. It has become part of the manifesto of the uh, shooter, the mass shooter in New Zealand, and of course here in Buffalo, in Poway, California, as I mentioned to him, it is not just anti-Semitic, it's racist. 
It is, but I wonder how we engage with this in a real way, because when you speak to some voters, he's speaking directly to the anxieties of some white conservatives who truly do feel as though the Democrats are on a mission through voters of color to replace them, who truly feel as though that many of the January 6th defendants were set up or overcharged. So Vivek Ramaswamy is representing some of what you hear from Republican voters. Mm -hmm. And so for as much admonishment as he's getting today, we can't forget that those voices exist and those voters exist. And I don't know how we grapple with that. Yeah, no, I mean, such an important, interesting, very difficult conversation, unfortunately, one that he brought into uh, the mainstream. I do want to turn back to the guy who's a front runner in this race at Donald Trump and what Ron DeSantis said last night about what Trump said this past week about the notion of being a dictator. The media is making a big deal about what he said about some of these comments. I would just remind people uh, that is not how he governed. He didn't even fire Dr. Fauci. He didn't fire Christopher Wray. He didn't clean up the swamp. He said he was going to drain it. He did not drain it. He said he was going to build the wall and have Mexico pay for it. We don't have the wall. I will go in and wreak havoc on this bureaucracy. You will see people fired. David. Well, he's leaving out a piece of this governing record, I think, when he says it's not how he governed, because at the end of his term of governing, he attempted to overturn uh, a legitimate election. That sounds pretty dictatorial to me. Um, I, you know, I, but I think this whole conversation about the dictator comments is, is whether he was offering some dark, perverse joke and like talking about the issues of uh, drilling and energy and the like, he refused to rule out when asked by the friendliest questioner, Sean Hannity, multiple times whether or not he would abuse the power of his office. He refused to rule out the notion that he possibly could. That, to me, end of story there. I mean, so it's really an indefensible position. But DeSantis, of course, sees that an opportunity to hit the media here, an opportunity to uh, make an argument against Trump that is based on not being Trumpy enough. And that's, that to me is part of the failure thus far of his salesmanship of his position in this race. Yeah, and is what one of the things that sent Chris Christie through the roof because he wasn't answering the question about his failure to say, I will not abuse my power if I'm in office again. Okay, everybody stand by. Up next, instead of spending today on the campaign trail, the man we were just talking about, Donald Trump, is back inside a New York City courtroom. He says he's not happy about it. Donald Trump spoke on his way into a New York courtroom today, calling the $250 million civil fraud trial against his Trump organization a witch hunt. When you value a place like Mar-a-Lago, at $18 million, when it's worth anywhere from 50 to 100 times, this case should be over. This case should have never been brought. This was a political witch hunt by an attorney general who's out of control. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez joins me, along with CNN national correspondent Kristen Holmes. It's Inside Politics, so let's start with the politics. Uh, and you've been reporting for some time, uh, along with our team, about the collision between Donald Trump 
the defendant on multiple fronts and Donald Trump, the candidate. Yeah, and it's only getting more and more closely knit. And what we're seeing now is Donald Trump did not have to be in court today. He wanted to sit through some of this testimony. Now, part of that is because these are his witnesses, the people who are going to say what he wants to hear. But all, the other part of that is that we've seen him really use these court appearances as campaign events. He had nothing on his schedule. And now we are taking sound from him at a courtroom because he's talking to cameras, talking about his legal cases. They are really trying to seek to amp up these events as campaign rallies. And as we know, Donald Trump is expected to testify on Monday. And you can expect he's going to try to take control of the narrative then as well. Well, I mean, look, I think today he had a witness in there who is, a, is an expert for the defense uh, who makes the case that, look, um, people make different calls on valuations of, of real estate all the time. It doesn't mean that you were trying to defraud. It means that people have different ways to value things. And so that's a very good case that he's trying to make. And one way to do that is by showing up in court. One way to draw attention to that, to what he was, uh, his lawyers were trying to do, is by having Donald Trump show up in court. So there is a strategy. I mean, oftentimes we wonder whether there's a strategy. Today, I think there was a strategy. But for the former president, I think one of the things that I think gets more complicated is how does he navigate the campaign trail and all of these, all of these trial dates that have come in, that he has coming up. Let's dig down. You mentioned that he is going to be testifying, we believe, on Monday. Can you remind people, because there's a lot of news about a lot of different yeah. trials and a lot of different legal battles that he's waging, this particular case and what it could mean for his company? Well, the, the, the com beyond the $250 million that is at stake, it's also whether his company can continue to do business in the state of New York. It really, you know, calls into question, you know, the viability of his company. And that's one of the reasons why he's fighting so hard. But I think, as Kristen points out, you know, one of the things that, that he is trying to do is seize the, 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 the trial calendar, the calendar, the legal calendar, and turn it to his advantage for his political benefit. Because he's not really... Uh, going to be the guy out there kissing babies in Iowa or anywhere else, right? He's not a regular politician, right? Um, so these trial events don't really have that kind of an impact, but he's instead trying to use it to seize it to his advantage. You'll see that yeah. political calendar right there. Uh, you know, he's got so many things, including, of course, the trial, the big one in Washington coming in March. And he's going to try to find a way to turn that to his advantage. Which is a criminal trial, trial very right. different from what we're seeing now. Real quick, what are you hearing from your sources about what to expect on Monday in this civil trial? Well, we expect Donald Trump to take control of the narrative. If you remember when he testified and he was cross-examined um, by the other side, he was already trying to take control of the narrative. However, the judge stepped in. This now means that his own lawyers are going to be asking the questions and he's going to get to say what it was that he wanted to say before. He will be in control of this and you should expect that he will try to take control of the entire experience just like we saw last time he testified every single moment of that day anytime he was allowed out of the courtroom he was in front of the cameras talking and i think you're going to see that again Kristen, Evan, good to see you. Thank you so much for your reporting, both of you. Senate Republicans blocked a bill that would have sent billions of dollars in aid to Israel and Ukraine. Will the president give in to the Republicans' demand? We'll explore after a quick break. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. 
Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. The president is in a bind. He wants to send tens of billions of dollars in new military aid to Ukraine. He says the global stakes are existential and that Ukraine's war with Russia is a battle between good and evil. But Republicans in Congress, even the ones who support Ukraine, support him in that argument, say they're not going to vote to help protect the, uh, the borders of Ukraine until President Biden protects America's southern border. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins me now from the White House. So, Priscilla, what is the White House doing now to try to salvage this and make some kind of deal? Is that even possible? Well, put simply, it's trying to find some sort of compromise, which the president is open to, according to his remarks yesterday. And sources tell me that the White House telegraphed to Senate negotiators last week what they might be open to. That includes two key issues, raising the credible fear standard for asylum seekers, but also casting a wider net of undocumented immigrants that are eligible for a fast-track deportation procedure. That latter point being similar to what was attempted under the Trump administration. Now, this is unlikely to sit well with some of the president's allies who see this as essentially reducing the number of migrants who might be eligible for asylum and also putting more migrants uh, on track to be deported more quickly. But the reality that the White House is facing here is that the situation on the ground is dire. They're facing more than 10,000 encounters daily, and that alone stresses federal resources. And so all of this just puts a very political or delicate political issue at the center of his foreign policy agenda leaving compromise as really the only option. Dana? I mean, compromise on immigration, I mean, it sounds so easy. (laughs) Priscilla, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Our reporters are back with us. I mean, let's start with Ukraine and this quote from the Ukrainian president Zelensky. He said, in the case of Ukraine, if resilience fails today due to lack of aid and shortages of weapons and funding, it will mean that Russia will most likely invade NATO countries and then the American children will fight. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think there's an invasion of a NATO country in the near future, but the basic point, I think, is correct. I think uh, I have a lot of criticism of the Biden administration for not giving more aid earlier. Um, uh, this sort of hurry up and wait dynamic, I think, was politically unwise. Um, he could have gotten away with giving a lot more aid up front. But on the same time, Biden's on the right side of the big picture argument, which is that we should be helping Ukraine. The Republicans are on the wrong side. That said, I think what the Republicans are doing here is smart politics. You can argue with the policy. And I also think that Ukraine eventually gets the aid. Uh, just maybe not on the timetable that they want. Well, talking about Republicans uh, pushing smart politics, I mentioned at the beginning there that even Republicans who are very, very supportive of Ukraine and its mission and wants the U.S. to help are saying not without immigration. Listen to what Lindsey Graham said on that. We need to help Israel. They're fighting for their lives. Uh, If Putin gets away with Ukraine, we'll be in a war with NATO because he won't stop. We need to help Taiwan stand up to China, but we need to secure our own friggin' border. I'm not going to send any money to Ukraine or anywhere else until we fix our broken border. No money for anybody until we secure our border. 
I mean, but Democrats are not in a position to really negotiate on this issue. We already see President Biden really vulnerable with a lot of his core constituencies. I'm not surprised that they are in this position on foreign aid, at least. I think despite the platitudes on both the left and the right, there is real concern as Americans are struggling about the political argument of uh, giving more foreign aid, although we see it more pronounced from House Republicans, uh, Democrats have that concern too. But I think that Senator Padilla's statement on this of California really reflects where a lot of Democrats are. He says that he's concerned about harmful changes to our asylum system. He suggests it's bad politics for Democrats and that permanent policy changes uh, would set a dangerous precedent. So that's why we don't see buy-in from Democrats here. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm glad you brought that up because we should dig a few inches deeper into what we're talking about here on immigration, what Republicans have on the table. This is what was in the House bill. Uh, New restrictions on the asylum process requires the Biden administration to reinstate remain in Mexico policy construction 700 miles of the border wall uh, require e-verify by employers ban grant funding to nonprofits that help migrants restricts the use of presidential parole for migrants which a lot of uh, people in the immigration space thinks is helping I mean these are big policy changes big policy changes that can't pass through the right. Senate and it can't get to the president's desk and House Republicans know that. So so that's going to be a non-starter here in terms of that's not going to be any end result. That's not the compromise position. That's the whole position of the Republican House conference. I, I, I think uh, different perhaps take than Alex Padilla in the Democratic caucus of the Senate. We heard from Mark Warner, a more moderate Democrat from Virginia yesterday, who is very much in the space of willing to uh, want to negotiate some kind of uh, border security enhancements and and some of these pieces. But even he says H.R. 2 is just so yeah. far to the right from their perspective that it's not going to be part of a final solution and, here to a negotiation. And, and real quick, politically speaking, is it beneficial for the president to do something on immigration which is an Achilles heel? Achilles heel is a kind way to put it. I mean, (laughs) it's literally one of his worst issues uh, that gets tested. So obviously, if he could have some kind of an immigration uh, policy victory to take out to the campaign trail, uh, that that could be beneficial. But as even noted, victory for who? Not for progressives. Well, it depends on what's in it. It's all about what's actually in the details. Perhaps there could be a victory that unites the Democratic Party. The other politics of this that we saw with the Obama administration and Joe Biden as well as a part of his term, taking the fight to the campaign trail and yeah. not an actual past policy can also work. Which is what uh, we've to, seen uh, on immigration reform for coalition. like two decades, which is part of the problem. Real quick, Jonah. Yeah, I, I think the way to think about the immigration thing is part of it, it's the Im- issue of immigration itself, but part of it is the chaos at the border. It's very reminiscent to me of the BP oil spill, mm-hmm. just the sense like, oh my gosh, this isn't ending, this isn't stopping, and it freaks people out, and it contributes to this idea that there's chaos, that Biden is not in control of things. Doing something to get control would help him a lot. Thank you so much. Great discussions throughout the entire panel uh, segments. Next, I'm going to talk to a Jewish Democratic Congresswoman on the complicated politics of being a proud progressive right now. Stay with us. The University of Pennsylvania's Board of Trustees just held an emergency meeting after this disastrous testimony from the school's president this week. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? 
If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision. In that moment, I was focused on... Said she should have spoken differently and that, yes, calling for genocide is deeply threatening. She is one of multiple college presidents under fire for their response to rising anti-Semitism on campus. I should say maybe lack of response. Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Becca Ballant from Vermont. Thank you so much for being here. Thank I appreciate you it. Um, can you explain why this is so hard? Why leaders of some of this, the country's mm -hmm. most elite universities could not say, yes, calling for the genocide of Jews is harassment? Yeah, I think what we saw in that moment are people who are stuck in their heads on these issues. And honestly, it should have been abundantly clear that in that moment, what they needed to say is absolutely, calling for the genocide of any people is harassment and threatening and not comfortable. I think we are at this point where everybody feels like they're walking on a tightrope and they lose their compassion. They lose their humanity in these moments. And it was shocking. Watching that testimony was absolutely shocking. And I think we all have to do better about bringing our heart and our compassion every single time we talk about these issues. Why are they forced onto this tightrope? What, what about the culture in higher education right now mm -hmm. makes them feel like if they say, yes, calling for genocide against Jews will hurt them with their, uh, either with their leadership, with their professors or their student body? I don't know. All I can tell you is we all have to get back to basic humanity here. And it, we get so hung up on words, right? And, and it, it is so clear uh, when we talk about this horrible, horrible war between Israel and Hamas, that there are all of these outside pressures forcing us to try to say certain words in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is we end up saying nothing, mm -hmm. nothing of substance. I want to play part of a video that you released uh, when you were campaigning for the House in 2022, talking about your family history. I know what can happen when we turn away from each other. My grandfather was murdered on a death march in the Holocaust. I grew up with the knowledge that people can be led astray when they're scared. You are a uh, obviously the granddaughter of a somebody who was killed in the Holocaust. Yeah. You are a proud, progressive Jew. Mm -hmm. What is it like to be you, to have all of these competing pressures right now when you do see a lot of the progressive movement yeah. being outright anti-Semitic in some, uh, yes, some the, spaces? The anti-Semitism has been unmasked uh, in the same way that the Islamophobia in this country has been unmasked by this. And I think what has become so clear to me is people are not willing to hold complexity. People are not willing to hold nuance, that both things can be true, that what happened on October 7th was absolutely disgusting, attacking civilians in their homes, killing babies, you know, raping women. That is abhorrent. And also seeing those civilian deaths in Gaza is also abhorrent. And somehow right now we're not able to hold the complexity, but we need to. This is not an easy issue. I want to play a, an exchange, part of an exchange that I had with the chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, on State of the Union on Sunday.
rape is horrific, sexual assault is horrific. I think that it happens in war situations. Terrorist organizations like Hamas obviously are using these as tools. Mm -hmm. However, I think we have to be balanced about bringing in the outrages against Palestinians. A few days later, she released a statement. A few days later, she released a statement saying, let me be clear again that I unequivocally condemn Hamas's use of rape and sexual violence as an act of war. Take me behind the scenes in your caucus. Why did she need to do that? How much pressure was there on her? You know, I, I, since I am not her, I can't speak yeah. to the pressure that, that she felt. I know for, for many of us within the Progressive Caucus right now, I think we are struggling with the fact that we all feel similarly, but that somehow isn't being um, heard by so many of our constituents. We all want an end to this war. We all want there to be uh, a, a safe and secure Gaza with no Hamas in charge. We want all the hostages released. We want the same things. And it is so clear to me that in these moments mm -hmm. that when we, we struggle so hard to hold both complexities that sometimes we say, but however, instead of yes and, because it's a yes and every single time. Becca Ballant, I'm so grateful that you came on for this important conversation. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Congresswoman. Thank you, Dana. Thank you for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after a quick break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.